Hello, and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today I'm talking about tits. Or rather, The Breast, by Philip Roth. Uh, apologies, first of all, for the two-month hiatus. It was unscheduled, um, but when life cooks up its twists and turns, it consistently fails to account for one's literary podcast. Uh, reality can't be reasoned with, as the narrator of this novel says, reality has more style. I can only quote the sodomite who said, as his candles blew out, I shall just keep blindly buggering on. Uh, and the fruits of that gloomy pounding are as follows. There's an episode on Will Self's Cock and Bull to follow this one, which will con- complete my run of uh, metamorphosis-themed works. Uh, then with Adam, I've got a Foul Papers and an episode on Wind in the Willows, Um, and we've also recorded an episode about the life of Arthur Conan Doyle that might beat this one to the punch. Um, But they will all be coming out reasonably quickly to make up for dropping off for a bit. So apologies again for the break. Uh, Before we get to the breast itself, um, I just want to have a little think about titrature in general. Depending on what you read, and cards on the table, I've got a shuffled pack of 20th century men, noticeably low on queens, you see certain tendencies about how breasts come across. We've probably all read the sort of fiction that has a kind of obsessive-compulsive relationship with breasts, and they get feverishly described in even the most passing moments. A young couple in the library sat reading Philip Roth. He was a wounded-looking Spaniard who held in his amber eyes something arrested, primal. His chick had knockers for weeks. Gazing down the bookshelves, I saw a variety of men, some of whom I could describe physically, and others with whom I connected so forcefully and emotionally that I could describe centuries of their heritage. But then a flat-chested librarian walked past, and my view was obscured. I've been reading a lot of Philip K. Dick stories recently, and it's impossible not to notice that every single female character, however peripheral, is tit-checked. Dick's chicks are bosom-forward, and you know just as soon as those bosoms are on, they'll start rising and heaving like out-of-work, period-drama breasts, undermining Dick's futurism. Because his physical descriptions are often sparse and he can do without hair colour and age and height, sometimes all we get is the breasts. The narrator in the short story The Eyes Have It is a man who becomes paranoid reading fiction. After coming across a load of sentences like his eyes roved around the room or he gave her his arm or he lost his head, all of which he takes literally, he begins to imagine a conspiracy of people with detachable body parts. Just like this narrator, after an hour or so of reading Philip K. Dick, it begins to seem like there are no bodies at all, just these hovering, heaving breasts. I used to just think that a strangely high proportion of writers I was interested in had a bit of a blind spot when it came to sex and breasts. I'm a big fan of J.G. Ballard's Cocaine Nights, despite and a little bit because of the moment where a woman says during a sex scene, don't forget my anus. But perhaps it speaks more of a piety on the part of us, the reader. Why expect an otherwise laconic and odd writer to be suddenly proper when it gets to sex? Of course, don't forget my anus is a ridiculous thing to say, but only if you've forgotten you're in Ballard land. What's worse, I think, is the false modesty some authors have. Maybe I'm having a pkd fueled paranoid moment, but often I've got the sneaky suspicion that some male authors have tactically deflated the breasts of their central women, the ones who become conquests, mournfully describing them as modest buds or mere dog ears, while in the meantime inflating some of the peripheral breasts for some background titillation. Others avoid the issue completely, and in a reverse of the Philip K. Dick approach, carefully describe everything except the chest leaving us with the forlorn image of a world populated with inexplicably mammectomied women. 
I suppose you can understand their reasons. In a serious novel, what could be less literary than some knockout tits? Philip Roth is more than aware of the literary heritage of breasts, not to mention metamorphoses. We've spoken already about Gregor Samsa, the hero of Kafka's short story, waking from troubled dreams to discover he has been transformed into a monstrous vermin. We've seen the metamorphoses of men into asses, as written by Apuleius in the 2nd century and Shakespeare in the 16th. Now, plunging into the 20th, we have this short novella from 1972, which is narrated by David Allen Kepesh, who is metamorphosed from a professor of literature into a £155 breast. Unlike Gregor Samsa, Kepesh isn't abandoned and reviled by his family, but hospitalised, visited and cared for. Furthermore, Kepesh, like Roth, knows his Kafka. This metamorphosis might be inexplicable, but it is not unprecedented, not for a teacher of Kafka, Gogol and Swift. Kepesh is a bona fide metamorphosis swat, which cannot help but make his own transformation alarmingly self-aware. During his convalescence, his attempts to rationalise what has befallen him range from existential despair to detached literary criticism. Why abreast, and why, as he asks himself, why, in the entire history of the human race, why David Allen Kepesh? Before we properly latch on to the breast, I just want to level with any Roth fans listening. The books I've spoken about recently have shared a focus on bodily transformation whilst also being major works by the author. Metamorphosis is probably the most famous work by Kafka, and The Golden Ass, the only novel by Apuleius. The Breast is a 70-something page novella and not generally ranked among Roth's great works. So this is the first episode where I feel obliged to fess up that it has been chosen more for how well it fits as a torso between The Golden Ass and the Metamorphoses stories we are heading towards, rather than it being the perfect place to start with Philip Roth. Then again, I'm not sure where the perfect place to start with Roth would be. Listening to a podcast recently, I heard someone say something along the lines of Roth changes so much from book to book that if someone asks, where shall I start with him? You can only answer, well, who are you? In which case, I can only hope that if you're listening, you're the kind of person who wants to read about men making tits of themselves. This is all my way of saying that I do intend to talk more about Roth at some point in the future. That quote, by the way, was from a commemorative podcast by The New Yorker, recorded shortly after Roth's funeral last year. It's a wonderful retrospective, so do go seek it out uh, once you finish with this, obviously, and tell them I sent you. Love to help out uh, an up-and-comer. I needn't bother saying that the breast, upon its first exposure to the public, caused the sort of enraged controversy that a woman breastfeeding causes at an English swimming pool. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a Philip Roth novel of which that isn't true, and just as elsewhere in his work, once you wave away the initial smog of nervous, puritanical brain farts, beneath the surface smut is something much more nourishing. That being said, some of the Breast's detractors include otherwise devout Roth fans. Placing the novella in the Roth canon and wondering where the comic flair of Portnoy's complaints had gone... Martin Amis describes the breast as coming in the middle of a trio of formal satires, comic in shape but only glancingly comic in execution. Looking on with expressions of strained indulgence, we allowed Roth this holiday and calmly waited for the comic genius to resume his obligations. Roth himself said of his future plans during the mania following the release of Portnoy's Complaint, he had an ambition to write a book that will stand Kafka on his head. Going on to say, instead of having a guy who is more and more pursued and trapped and finally destroyed by his tormentors, I want to start with a guy tormented and then the opposite happens. 
They come to the jail and they open the door and they say to you, a terrible mistake has been made. And then they give you your suit back with your glasses and your wallet and your address book and they apologise to you. And they say, look, people from big magazines are going to come and write stories on you and here's some money and we're sorry about this. Like Kafka, what Roth reveals is not the darkly funny and the horrible, but the horror in the comic. Kepesh sees the joke all right, but he just can't help feeling bitterly about it. One of the ways in which he seems to stand Kafka on his head is by taking Gregor's room away, lifting up the box and revealing the squirming beastie. Gregor's private failures and shames travel no further into the world than his skin. They lie on the surface, like the apple lodged in his hide. His parents ignore him as if he had lost his mind or become an alcoholic. Neither his transformation nor the speculative cause of it are made explicit or discussed. Kepesh, meanwhile, is being quizzed and psychoanalysed from the start. Where Gregor Samsa is at least offered a cushion of ambiguity, Kepesh has any such hope flattened by the biological truths of what has occurred to him. He learns that somewhere between midnight and 4am on February the 18th, 1971, his body experienced a massive hormonal influx, or an endocrinopathic catastrophe, or maybe a hermaphroditic explosion of chromosomes. Blind as any other breast, he can only accept what he is told along with the sympathy and mockery which visit him. We'll get to those later. He becomes convinced that he is under constant surveillance, perhaps even being televised, an object of morbid entertainment for a tabloid audience. He recounts his experiences, trying his utmost to find a justification for his condition, anything to resist the dangerous possibility that he has been turned into a breast just because. It began oddly, he says. But how could it have begun otherwise, however it began? It has been said, of course that everything under the sun begins oddly and ends oddly and is odd. A perfect rose is odd, so is an imperfect rose. So is the rose of ordinary rosy good looks growing in your neighbour's garden. Kepesh here allows briefly for the perspective from which everything seems awesome and mysterious, everything a wonder, before quickly amending the view, some things are more wondrous than others, and I am one such thing. The universe that flickers open for a minute here, right at the beginning of the novella, is a profoundly non-literary one, where awesome phenomena are not organised but occur when they feel like it. A chaotic place where one could be transformed into a breast as easily as a newt or a newspaper, the cause remaining so utterly mysterious that you can never hope to understand it. It is the kind of universe ruled by a god whose reasoning can't be fathomed, or more likely ruled by nothing, or by nature. Nature who commands that some will wake up covered in boils for no apparent reason, or that your heart will betray you, or this or that organ turns saboteur, more or less at random. This is what makes it an unliterary universe, a universe with no design. It is about as far from an Ovidian setup as possible, that friendly world where metamorphoses have a causal relationship with the behaviour of the metamorphosed. Act like an ass, get trapped in an ass. Here, there is no why. Kepesh narrates retrospectively in a period of relative calm after many desperate attempts at understanding his condition. Although a few sentences later his description of himself as one of the more wondrous things seems to refute a totally chaotic universe, hinting that his turning into a breast may after all hold significance, we discover that he may have always conceived of himself inhabiting a universe without motive. In the run-up to his metamorphosis taking hold, he describes himself quite wonderfully as a devout hypochondriac always on the lookout for manifestations of unknown and incurable diseases. But is there such thing as a hypochondriac here? In a universe where the lungs of a young sportsman can blacken and fail while crabby old smokers puff on into triple digits, how can one irrationally search for signs of terminal disease? 
And devout, in this case, is not just comic and more than glancingly, as Amos has it, but already suggests a kind of latent faith in Kepesh, a faith in the impossible, chaotic and awful, a faith in the apocalyptic. He is, as he later describes, a mammary gland disconnected from any human form, such as could only appear, one would have thought, in a dream or a Dali painting. But a disconnected mammary gland in a Dali painting would only be a fanciful image in a fanciful world, thought about and observed by other minds with no mind of its own. Not the case with Kepesh, who, like any hypochondriac worth the name, keeps rigidly abreast of his symptoms developing over an incubation period of 21 days. In the beginning, he notices a pinkening of the skin around his penis. I look stained, as though a small raspberry or maybe a cherry has been crushed against my pubes, the juices running down onto my member, colouring the root of it raggedly but unmistakably red. Once transformed, he says, the bulk of my weight is fatty tissue. At one of my ends, I am rounded off like a watermelon. At the other, I terminate in a nipple, cylindrical in shape, projecting five inches from my body and perforated at the tip with 17 openings, each about half the size of the male urethral orifice. He weighs about 155 pounds, saying formerly he was 162. His excretory system, he learns, is reduced and primitive. All of this he has to be told, as he is now sightless. Though I am still Caucasian, my nipple is rosy pink. This is considered unusual because I was previously an emphatic brunette. In response to this, Kepesh tells the doctors he doesn't find this fact all too unusual in the grand scheme of what has happened to him. One of the pleasures of this novella is here and there remembering that the agonies and theories being desperately and eloquently put forth are being made by a breast, forcing us to imagine the ghostwriter having pulled up his chair to the bedside as the anguished and world-weary boob recites his memoirs. Early on, he recalls the changes in his sex life during the incubation period running up to his metamorphosis. We discover that he has had something of a dry spell with his girlfriend Claire. His former lust for her has waned, and they have had sex two or three times a month. He finds this hard to understand as his feelings for her otherwise remain unchanged, and he seems to be as happy as he has ever been, calling his diminishing of desire a depressing, bewildering development. They get along with so little strain. Claire might have a well-behaved schoolteacher's idea of hot sex, but Kepesh doesn't mind her lacking colour. He has had quite enough of colour, thank you. And he is glad to be shot of the wild, unfocused yearning of his past. He feels grounded, dug in and permanent about myself, as I hadn't since I'd been a senior in college and knew for a fact that I was a serious and intelligent person. What we are being encouraged to believe here, it seems, is that Kepesh has been transformed into a breast as an emasculating punishment for his loss of desire. It looks at first glance like the perfect justice for a man who has lost his sexual drive. A breast just hangs there, acted upon instead of acting, sexualized but not reproductive. It would be somewhat different if the title were The Bosom or The Cleavage, but Kepesh is singly blocked out from embodying the erotic and resigned to the classical, the lone breast of the breastfeeder or the damaged statue, half-busted. Later on, Kepesh will suspect that his happiness had something to do with it. Being too happy, or maybe too content, he has lost the wild part of himself, the part that hunts for colour and ecstasy. Supporting this theory is the fact that during his incubation period, as he worriedly kept tabs on his symptoms, he had a dramatic increase in local sensation, and briefly, his lust for Claire returned, suggesting perhaps that a fear of death, intruding on his contentment, is what keeps him alive. Looked at in a crueler way, his sin, if it is the sin of contentment, his abandonment of ecstasy, that his punishment is to become a breast, driven mad by ecstatically craving sexual fulfilment, but being incapable of release. 
From what we hear of Claire and Kepesh's sexual life, our narrator seems to be something of an unexamined taker, not exactly an unfamiliar figure in literature. He expresses blank surprise at Claire's dislike of anal sex and her refusal to receive my sperm in her mouth. So when he's in his hospital bed, as a breast, reduced to begging Claire hysterically to put her hand or her mouth on his nipple, it is hard not to see Kepesh as being forced to experience female sexuality and finding the difference between it and his own as big as the difference between a strapless bra and an eye patch. It's worth mentioning that Kepesh is stunned when Claire, nice, pleasure-giving Claire, preempts him. It was Claire herself who suggested that she, should, she would play with my nipple if I wanted her to. This indicates that she might recognise what he is incapable of wording. The limits of his recognition are highlighted by his aborted attempt at role reversal. If Claire had been turned into an enormous penis... But I could not see the sense of following the fantasy through to the end. The best he can do is wonder if culture is to blame. Was I just another American boy raised on a diet too rich with centrefolds? This or plumb the depths of his past. It's all too far back where I am. I claw the slime at the sea bottom, but by the time I rise to the surface, there is not even silt between my fingernails. Lines that are reminiscent of T.S. Eliot's in the love song of Alfred J. Prufrock. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. Both sound like attempts to physicalise lowliness or shame. When Kepesh goes on to say, the breast is me and I am the breast, the concave is the convex and the convex is the concave. We are reminded of the concave shell of the metamorphosed Gregor Samsa, projecting for the first time his shame or sin into the world. But Kepesh will not be permitted to investigate himself unobserved. In Deborah Shostak's words, Instead, Kepesh must perceive himself as an uncanny object, in and for the gaze of another. Elizabeth Sabaston says, The whole point about the breast is that others have to react to it. It has no limbs, they can get no handle on it. Kepesh, as the breast, is reduced to passive sensation. The taker has now to receive. His father visits, and is for Kepesh unbearably sane in the face of his son as a breast. Is he a god, or is he a simpleton? Or is he just numb? Kepesh wonders. Mercifully, we hear, his mother is dead. Then there is Claire, who, leaning over him and sobbing, fills him with sexual possibilities. At this, he actually feels relief at being blind. He knows he wouldn't be able to request them if he could see her face. But even Claire's mouth isn't enough to satiate Kepesh, and he attempts to bribe an elderly nurse into sitting on his nipple. He can't face asking Claire to do so even if he is blind, and tellingly later says he is tired of guarding against the loss of Claire's goodness. He's even struck by the possibility of pushing his nipple up the anus of a male nurse, though deciding he is not yet desperate enough to become a homosexual, he is forced also to realise there is nothing homosexual about a female nipple entering a male anus. If this is all sounding gratuitously puerile and that I'm just hopping from one mention of an orifice to the next, like fictional clap, then let me assure you that it is intentional. Kepesh might be exaggeratedly obsessed with sexual release, but remember he's also a high-minded teacher of literature. Being forced to think in such simplistic bodily terms from the moment of his first symptoms appearing to his desperate attempts to get someone, anyone, to sit on his nipple is in essence the comedy and tragedy of Kepesh. Everything is odd. The perfect rose, the ordinary rose, and the rose with a smoker's cough. What Kepesh's plight makes us see is just how little it takes, just a volcanic release of mammogenic fluid, to distort an ordinary existence to one where he is forced to debate how and whether to convince a man to sit on his giant nipple. The two parts of himself that he cannot reconcile are the well-informed feeling and enlightened understanding of literature and the unexamined, perhaps even blind nature of his physicality. Roth plays out the adage, everybody shits, 
for its comic and tragic potentialities. To come back to Kafka's Samsa with his cushion of ambiguity, is he a cockroach or a vaguely vermin? Is it the shame of his soul or some kind of noble sacrifice? Kepesh, like I say, gets no such treatment, being told in no uncertain terms, you are a woman's breast. Indeed, he himself says very early on, I am a breast. Would Samsa ever have said, I am a cockroach? Nabokov read Metamorphosis as a man's instincts mingling with his newfound insect ones, but I find it hard to imagine Samsa being ever so far mingled as to say, I am a cockroach. Even when he develops a liking for climbing walls and hanging off the ceiling, I can still only go as far as imagining him saying, I am Gregor Samsa stuck in the body of a cockroach. Not so with Kepesh, I am abreast. This suggests that he has reached some kind of acceptance that his body has triumphed over his education and over the man, that he has realised he won't be as ridiculous if he says, I am abreast. Not so ridiculous as if he says, I am a man and a literary professor, trapped in the body of a woman's breast. Even his earlier reference to himself as being previously an emphatic brunette hints subtly at him feminising his past. And he has proved very sensitive to ridicule, calling the idea of being broadcast in his current condition wounding. He's devastated when visited by an old friend, Arthur Sean Brunn, another literary academic to whom David was a protégé. Despite his best efforts, Sean Brunn can't stop laughing at Kepesh. He tries to be sympathetic but can't hold back, laughing uncontrollably. Deborah Shostak has commented, Sean Brunn's hysterical laughter is an indicator of his own unsoundness. And Elizabeth Sabiston has suggested that the breast ridicules Roth's critics and narrow, puritanical critics of literature in general. Unable to think past easy categorizations. these, in Sabiston's words, American sociological didactic critics, intent on labelling Roth as a Jewish novelist, see only what their own preconceptions allow, and what they see is that Roth is willfully and hedonistically shocking the reader. Where is my milk? shrieks Kepesh at one point at once sounding like a petulant child at break time, and also someone in the midst of an existential existential crisis trying to locate his function. The breast's function, after all, is to nourish an ambition shared by the best literature. Kepesh, in this petulant child-stroke existential tragedy, is voicing simultaneously the trouble of the critic and the trouble of the character. The trouble of both is that they are as blind as the breast. The critic can't see into it, and Kepesh can't see out. If the critic could see past the surface smut of a breast... They would begin to engage with Roth's ideas at the level which he wants them to. Kepesh can't see out of the breast and work out what Roth has in store for him. Characters don't know what their authors have in store for them, and we don't know what life has in store for us. Both the critic and the character from either side of the breast are screaming, Where is my milk? Kepesh's psychoanalyst, Dr. Klinger, keeps telling him that he will pull through with strength of character and will to live. And it's hard not to start reading the words character and will with a literary emphasis. However strong a character Kepesh is, we are still aware that he is a fictional character, and moreover one subject to chaotic forces that have turned him into a breast. We know that the force controlling Kepesh, Philip Roth, could have easily turned him into a cockroach, killed him off, or had him fall in love, making a bit of a joke of Kepesh's will. Furthermore, his familiarity with the behaviour of metamorphoses in literature makes him frantically search for its cause. It can't be a simple biological anomaly, that explosion of mammogenic fluid or whatever, nature's joke. He recalls, somewhat abashed, that he did once on a beach turn green with envy at the sight of Claire's breast, and admits to fleetingly having wished he could become it. Yes, that I said. I admit openly that I said it. And if this were a fairy tale, we could now understand the moral. Beware fanciful desires, you may get lucky. 
But such logic is booby-trapped, as Kepesh goes on to argue. He has wished for many things more seriously than that fanciful bit of desire on the beach. How awful would it be to have all your serious dreams and wishes and prayers ignored, and some idle bit of imaginative role-play treated as if it was your Cinderella moment? Kepesh, after debunking this and other possible causes, resolves with the commitment to make it mean something. It could not happen to anyone else, he says. One answer has particular appeal. I'm mad though, aren't I? I asked. No. The setback was only momentary. I realised he must have said yes, and I had instantaneously turned it to its opposite, as we turned right side up the images that flash upon the retina upside down. Despite his fervently wanting to go mad, he discovers it to be impossible, concluding glumly that he is a citadel of sanity. Another possibility occurs to him, that his teaching subjects may be to blame. Of course, many professors teach the nose and metamorphosis, answers Klinger, but maybe, says Kepesh, not with so much conviction as I do. Where Kafka and Gogol and Swift could imagine and describe, Kepesh has had to actually experience. We can hear, I think, another swipe at the narrowness of criticism in the following. Great art happens to people like anything else. Ah, but I must maintain my perspective. No delusions, certainly no delusions of grandeur. Delusions of grandeur, along with pretentiousness and self-indulgence, have long been stock clichés used by critics to describe anything they didn't immediately comprehend. What's great about this little aside is that instead of having a petulant moment of his own and slamming critics for calling writing self-indulgent, Roth first states an undeniable fact that ordinary lives can be struck with unforeseen depth or artistic flavour, and then immediately has Kepesh chastise himself for straying into pretension. This rightly ridicules the the fallacy of calling any art self-indulgent, because of course it is. Speaking of pretentious, though, Kepesh mocks Schombrun for making a gift of Laurence Olivier's recordings of Hamlet, calling them Philistine. But of course, even a breast can find food for thought in Shakespeare. Kepesh knows all too well that there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in his philosophy. He has realised already, pretending to be mad, just as Hamlet does, only proves his inability to accept his reality. He, like the prince, has been procrastinating in his globe, delivering to us an extended soliloquy on his existential despair. As Elizabeth Sabiston says, like a Laurence Olivier, Kepesh must follow Hamlet's advice for the players and virtually give a recitation, as, as from a stage, whenever I wanted to make my every word understood. Reality has more style, concludes the embittered professor who became a female breast. Do we believe him? Does reality have more style? Or do we just hope it does? Kepesh himself says what he misses most in his situation is the banal, the trivial, the silliness of life shut off from him by the fact of his condition. He wants to shut away the intellectual responsibility of his misfortune. Better the banal than the apocalyptic. Now this surely we can agree with. In the moments where he cries out, amazed to Dr. Klinger, that despite his catastrophe he's been listening to the weather, to the six o'clock news, we immediately reject Klinger's now familiar response. Strength of character, will to live. Because this isn't strength of character or will to live, but the decision, and the very human decision, to take the banal over the apocalyptic. John Gardner sees the subject of the banal as Roth's theme. The trick, which is at the heart of the book, is brilliant. To celebrate the ordinary, the silly, the banal, create a grotesque and extraordinary banality, a huge detached breast with human consciousness and feeling. But then, having got the bra off, Gardner catches himself in his zipper and slams Roth for all the usual... Why must he talk so much filth stuff? The banal may be wonderful subject matter, but it's lousy as a literary method. 
Which brings us back to how do you look at the breast, or maybe just any breast, as a naughty bit to make silly jokes about on your podcast, or a source of life-enriching nourishment? Is it an object of classical simplicity or infantile veneration? The book concludes with a poem of Rilke's, the archaic torso of Apollo, and in response to its final lines that go, There is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Kepesh affirms, yes, let us proceed with our education, one and all. So that's about it for the breast. I hope that I've um, made a good case for it. I thoroughly recommend you go and read it. I I think despite appearances and, and reputation, it's a in fact a tonic against the wearily macho novels of 20th century male literature and um, more than glancingly comic. It's been more than usually tempting to to quote it at length. So once again, sorry for the long delay. There will be more episodes in the coming weeks, hopefully a sort of denser patch. Um, And if you want to keep in touch or support the podcast, please, uh, if you have the time, leave us a review on iTunes or um, like us on Facebook, at here, read this. Same for Twitter. Um, and same for Instagram as well. Follow us on all of those, just whenever you clear a, clear a half hour to go and be asked, Or just simply recommend it to a friend, go the old-fashioned route. Um, do some graffiti, get a tattoo, that would be great. Build a statue. If you've got more than half an hour, you could do some skywriting. That w- that we'd be especially interested in, in skywriting. So if you have the resources, please go for that. Um, next up is um, a foul papers, I think, unless the Arthur Conan Doyle thing hasn't come out yet. Until then, I've been Ash. This has been Eerie This. Thank you very much for listening and happy reading. Mm-hmm.